Hey everybody, it's me, your host Daisha, and you are about to hear my chat with composer Dale Trumbor about poetry and music and setting poetry to music and how poetry lends itself to music and writing poetry to music. You get the idea. Dale is great, and she even almost gets me to sing in this episode. So um, be prepared to either turn your speakers up or down for that moment. Anyhow, you will enjoy this episode. I know it. And uh, when you do, make sure to subscribe to, rate us, and review us on iTunes. Okay, here we go. There's a rumor going around that classical music can be hoity-toity. But here in the classical classroom, we beg to differ. Beethoven 5. (laughs) (laughs) Isaiah is shaking with excitement over here. I mean, there's just so many great parts of the opera. He asked me to play his favorite spot in the first moon of the Brahms. And he said, I started using those licks in my guitar solos. It's how to be classical music rock stars, because there's not enough of that in this business. Occasionally, I would plug in the mandolin to my distortion pedals. <laughs> I don't change my voice. And talking to classical I, music voice. <laughs> I'm playing classical music now. I mean, it's, it's yeah. the same 12 notes. That's what's so cool about it. I'm Daisha Clay, a classical music newbie, and I'm trying to learn all I can about the music. Come learn with me and the classical music experts I invite into the Classical Classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and joining us today from the Marketplace Studios in Los Angeles is composer Dale Trumbor. Dale's work particularly focuses on setting poems and prose by living authors to music, which we're going to talk a little bit about today. Uh, her work has been commissioned and performed all over the U.S. and the world. She's also a writer herself. In January of 2017, Choral Arts Initiative will release an album of her works for chorus. Dale, welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So what are you going to be teaching me about today? So I love writing for the voice, and usually with singing, not always, but usually if you're singing, you have to have something to sing about, and you have to have some words to sing. Uh Um, And so that's what led me to setting poetry in the first place. And then I also just have a love of words. I like writing. Um, I've stopped. I used to write poetry, and I've kind of gotten away from that. But I still have this deep love for it and for the, the craft of just words that fit together really beautifully and then that extra step of words that can be kind of illuminated by music and brought to life in a new way. So I'm going to be talking about what makes a poem a really good poem to set to music. Okay. And then I'm going to get into the process of how a composer goes about taking that poem and transforming it into a choral piece. So talk to me about why using why you use living authors particularly. I mean, there are all of these great dead guys out there that you could use. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's a good question. And part of that lies in, in the word guys <laughs> you, ah, yes. you just used. There's a lot of uh, public domain poetry. There are some wonderful female writers who are public domain, like uh, Sarah Teasdale and Emily Dickinson, mm-hmm. who are set to music a lot. But a lot of public domain poetry, since when I say public domain, I mean prior to 1923 or so, music that is not under copyright. Mm -hmm. So when you set a poem to music, you have to make sure that you have permission to use it. So either it's in the public domain or you have to go to the publisher or the poet and get permission. Ah. Yes. You know, I've never really thought about that. I've never, like, because, you know, I've often heard 
of Emily Dickinson being set to music and like, mm-hmm. um, oh my gosh, who is that other female author that I hear so often set to music? Anyway, she's she's from like a similar time period. You know that one other one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but like, uh, it never occurred to me that part of the reason to to use older writers is because of expense and and the complications yeah. of using newer writing. Yeah. So huh. I have two reasons for liking living poetry. And one is that for me, it feels much more contemporary. It feels more of this moment mm-hmm. and it feels newer and fresher. Yeah. And I'm lucky that I've I started working with uh, a bunch of poets about, I think it's six or so years ago, and I've stayed in touch with them. And now they're the, the poets that I can go to and I can go to them directly. I don't have to worry about their publisher or any of that I can oh. go to them and get permission from them and if there is a publisher they deal with a publisher um, so huh. I've taken the time to kind of build a, a little network of poets but the other the other part of that uh, too is a lot of the public domain poetry has been set to music so many times mm-hmm. so many times and so working with living poets usually you get to be the first one to set a poem uh, and then also it does, it, it feels more, it just feels more modern. And, yeah. 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 That's, I think that's so interesting. We don't talk a lot about the sort of practical things that form a creative work sometimes. And yeah. and that you've like said about creating these relationships with people, not just for artistic reasons, but but just for practical, I, you know, I can use your stuff reasons. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And it helps that they're all, they're wonderful people too. That's always a a plus. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, okay. You said you've got like a little network of of writers that that you work with. How how does that work? I guess like what's, what's your process? Do you, do you go to one of them and say, I would like to create a music about fill in the blank topic? Or do you read their work somewhere and go, oh, I like this one. Can I use this? Yeah. So, uh, sort of both, depending okay. on the opportunity. Uh, if it's a commission, so if a chorus approaches me and says, uh, I want a piece about America or something uh-huh. or, or nature, the ocean, or it could it could be anything, um, then I need a very specific poem that actually fits with that theme. Yeah. So then I might go to a writer that I know or a bunch of writers and say, hey, do you have anything that fits this theme? Um, but otherwise, I keep a I keep a database of poems that I know I want to set in the future, just on my computer, ready to go. So when I have an opportunity to choose a text, I go uh-huh. I go to that. Okay, okay, yeah. that's that's pretty cool. And 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 I guess the other component is just in addition to liking the piece of writing and and it being the appropriate piece of writing. Like, is there is there more to it? Like, how do you how do you know that a piece of writing will work when you set it to music, or how do you know that it won't work? Yeah, so that's a great question because not all poems do work, uh, and so I look for I look for a few things uh, that make a poem really great for setting to music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned I mentioned earlier that music has to sort of light up the poem in a new way; it has to illuminate it, mm-hmm. uh, and. Some poems, if they are, let's say it's light first, it's a really funny, short, tight little poem. Um, it might not be a great poem to set to music because maybe it relies on one joke and <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Uh, and music, we'll see in some of the examples that I want to show you later, uh, music tends to stretch out language a little bit. Mm-hmm. We usually sing words slower than we say them. So 
if we have something that's really, again, like one joke, it might even slow the joke down <laughs> to set it to music. Right. Um, but aside from that, uh, another thing to to think about is some some poems have really long, complex phrases with mm. lots of clauses, and they ramble and they go on and on, kind of like this sentence is doing. And by the time you get to the end, you have no idea what's been said at the beginning. <laughs> If it's set to music, obviously on the page with some poems, you can go back and you can read. If the language is like really complicated and dense, yeah. you can go back and, and read it, right? Or like if we were looking at a painting, say, you get the whole thing at once, right? But music, because it's a time-based art, we have to let it unfold and we're kind of at the mercy of our ears. So that's another thing to think about is how, how long are the phrases? And then the last thing I think about, too, is can I... Can I set, uh, we're, we're going to talk about text painting, but okay. um, can I take specific words or images from the poem and set them to music in a way where the music demonstrates exactly what the word is saying? Yeah. One of the first examples we can talk about is this classic textbook case of a really early example of text painting, okay. which is uh, from the Thomas Wilkes uh, English madrigal as Vesta was from Latmos Hill descending. Oh, yeah, let's hear it. Yeah. <laughs> so we're hearing descending and ascending. And what is he doing with? the word descending and the word ascending. Oh. What's the melody doing? Uh-huh. It goes down on descending, right? Yeah. And it goes up on ascending. So it's it's a really basic, really easy to understand yeah. example of very basic te- text painting. Huh. Right? Descending, maybe the melody should go down. Okay. And ascending, maybe when we sing, the melody should go up. So text painting is basically illustrating what's happening in the text through music. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and a lot of composers do this. So this, again, this piece was written in, I think, 1601. So it's it's an early example of the a word, a very specific word, doing something in the music to show uh, what the word's meaning is. Aha. Um, cool. But we get this a lot. J.S. Bach does it, and we get this all the way through to contemporary poetry. Huh. Pretty much every composer likes to text paint when they set uh, <laughs> words to music. So uh, um, I, I think this is kind of a related question because we're talking about we were initially talking about form and things like that. And, mm-hmm. and like um, I'm wondering, OK, so I was hanging out with a writer and professor friend of mine the other night and she blew my mind. She, she like started. She told me that um, she sings Emily Dickinson poems to her class first of all I was like well that is awfully ballsy of you to sing in front of your class and then and then I was like um like really like why would you sing it and she was like oh well it's 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 written in a musical form and it's meant Mm -hmm. to be sung and I was like what are you talking about I am an English major I've never heard this before (laughs) so so yeah can you talk a little bit about form and which forms lend themselves to music and and what on earth my friend was talking about? Yeah, so <laughs> just like music has forms like sonata form or a rondo, poetry has forms as well, like a sonnet or a villanelle. And 
some of those lend themselves uh, more easily to music than others. But usually in, in older poetry, if the poem is in a form, we have rhyme and we have meter. Uh-huh. So we have a sense of maybe... Uh, like one one example would be uh, stopping by woods on a snowy evening. Mm-hmm. We have whose whose woods these are. I think I know his house is in the village, though, right? Uh-huh. I'm saying it kind of in a sing song way, but the words fall into this pattern, right? So if we were going to set it to music, um, the meter's already there for us. Ah. One two one two or one two three four one two three four one two three four, right? Huh. Whose woods these are? So. Obviously, as a composer, especially writing contemporary music, we can kind of stretch and play with these forms Mm -hmm. uh, when we set music. But I think as a composer, and this comes back to why I like working with living poets and free verse a lot, is poems like that can kind of lock you into music that adopts that rhythm and has the same sense of uh, rigid meter. And then free verse lets you go a little freer. Huh. So, Yeah. Okay, so so if it's free verse, you know, it's it, you as I'm assuming as the composer are then grouping the text into musically meaningful chunks. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and then so then I'm going to look for other things like are there words that keep coming back and if there isn't rhyme at the end of every line, maybe there's internal rhyme, so words that rhyme with each other within the line, or slant rhyme, words that almost rhyme with mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. So I think actually a really good example to look at next of a, a contemporary arrangement of a hymn, mm-hmm. we could take a look at The Road Home, and it's arranged by Stephen Paulus. And this is kind of a, a weird example of the music uh, being written second. So the poet wrote the words to fit a pre-existing melody. Oh, okay. So just in the text, you can already hear that sense of meter that we were talking about. Yeah. So I'll, I can read you a little bit of the poem if you want. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so it goes, uh, tell me where is the road I can call my own that I left that I lost so long ago. All these years I have wandered. Oh, when will I know there's a way, there's a road that will lead me home. <laughs> so you can kind of hear it starting yeah. to fit into a meter and and a musicality. And there's there's one thing too before we listen to this one. I wanted to look at the word wandered and show you one more thing. How can you can you say that word for me? Wa- wandered? Yeah. Wandered. So yeah. So <laughs> the first syllable we we tend to say higher unless uh-huh. we're asking a question, which you did the first time right wandered. wandered. <laughs> but if we're yeah. just saying it in a sentence, we go wandered. Yeah. And the first syllable is a higher pitch than the second syllable, usually. Yeah. Right? Okay. So if you were setting this to music, maybe, you would set a higher note for the first syllable and a lower one. And then also, with that same word, the first syllable is stressed and the second one is unstressed. Right? Mm-hmm. Wandered. So maybe the first syllable would be on a strong beat, and then we'd have a weaker beat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we hear? Yeah, yeah. Let's, hear, let's hear an example.
Hmm. Yeah. That poem is by Michael Dennis Brown. Okay. And again, that's kind of a weird reverse. <laughs> Usually we find the poem, we set it to music, but that's kind of a cool one to look at the text yeah. by itself and hear the music already in it. Well, and this, it strikes me, as I was listening to you talk about this, that and, and just listening to the music, that the music that you're talking about, at least that you've talked about thus far, is like the, the notes in the music and the, the text are very tied up together. Um, mm-hmm. But... You know, I was, um, have you ever listened to the podcast uh, Song Exploder? No, I've, I've heard about it, but I haven't listened to it yet. It's really cool. They, they, yeah. um, they take a, a piece of music, usually by a band, although they do composers sometimes too, and they yeah. have the people talk about, about how they created the song, and they, and they explode the song and take apart its parts. Well, they, I was listening to a, a band that I really like talk about how they came up with the lyrics to their song, and mm-hmm. as I listened to the song, I thought, oh, they must have written this you know, meaningful poem because it's this really kind of deep song, uh, and, and then they must have set it to music. But in fact, what happened was they wrote this music and they just sort of started singing nonsense words and then <laughs> kind of formed them into words eventually. And so, and there was very much not that relationship between the music and the words. Like they were sort of floating on top, I guess. I don't know yeah, how else yeah. to say it. So, but what you're talking about is so different than that. Like, do you ever do you ever do that? Do you ever take that approach? I haven't really. But um, and the part of that's that I don't usually write my own lyrics. Although that's something someday I would like to get back to doing. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely. I think going the opposite way can can be its own inspiring. I don't know way to generate something creative too. Yeah. And as a composer, too, it's always good to have different ways to shake up your methods. Because uh, sometimes we kind of get stuck doing one thing, and I think it's it's good to be open to other things that might stretch you and pull you in a different way. Are you talking about art song? We've talked a little bit about art song on this show before. And I understand that it's it's music that's through written yeah, through composed. Through composed. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> through composed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's um so choral music uh we tend to not call art song usually. Oh, okay. Um usually art song is just a solo singer or maybe more singers and usually piano, although it could be a different accompaniment. Uh-huh. But you're absolutely right. There's so many similarities and I write art song too and that goes through mostly the same process and that is also through composed. So the music takes us through the entire poem okay. uh, and changes and doesn't necessarily have, say, a refrain that comes back. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking at free verse, it is probably going to be through composed. We might find little ways to come back to certain ideas. Uh-huh. Um, like if a word comes back, maybe we bring back the musical idea. But yeah. in general, it is going to be through composed. So you're absolutely correct about that. Okay. Whereas yeah. with like <laughs> choral, choral music, you might have... A refrain. You might have... Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I see. And a lot of choral music does, and the piece we just listened to uh, does as well. It, it keeps repeating that music 
uh, under the text, even though the text changes. I feel like I cut you off a little while ago when we were talking about um, text painting. Like I started talking about something else that had popped into my head. Did you have more that you wanted to say about that? Well, we could move into talking about uh, text painting the mood of an image. Ooh, uh, yes. So how we okay. how we capture the mood of a piece uh, or of a poem in a piece. I like it. Um, yes. So uh, one poem or one piece and one poem um, that does this really well, I think, is uh, Threshold of Night by Tarek O'Regan. And uh, this is another contemporary piece. This is not an arrangement. This is a new composition written in 2006 and the poet is Kathleen Rain and the first bit of the poem is who stands at my door in the storm and rain on the threshold of being one who waits till you call him in from the empty night so what what are you getting from the the mood of that (laughs) you had to pick words (laughs) it's it's a little spooky yeah right yeah it's kind of mysterious and there's a Uh little bit of tension who stands at my door you're like what I I don't know. So uh, <laughs> let's let's listen um, okay. this recording and yeah. Yeah. Peace flows together. Yeah. So it's very it's very stark, right? Yeah. And this is some some beautiful choral writing too, because he's playing with the texture. He's not just having everyone sing at once. Right. He's he's having using soloists and and just a few voices at a time uh-huh. before he has everyone come in to create that kind of emptiness. And we have the word empty too, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's creating this mysterious mood and imagery yeah. just through how he's writing for the chorus. Yeah, you know, I, I have to admit that I've I've had a difficult time as as a listener. Like I'm you know I'm I'm learning about classical music in general, but I've had a particularly difficult time with choral music. And with classical vocal music, and I don't, hmm. I don't know why exactly. I, I really can't pinpoint what it is, but I gotta say that was really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Terry Reagan is is great, and yeah. maybe since you have an English background, maybe the way in is through the words. Maybe. I know that's that's how it is for me, but maybe you find poems 
like poems by Emily Dickinson. Maybe you go back to the public domain poems that have been said <laughs> a million times and you find a poem you really like and see if there are musical settings of it. And, That's a good idea. Yeah. That's a really good idea. Okay, so where, where should we go next? So if you want, we could talk about my music and yeah. how I go about setting setting modern poetry to music. Yeah, I would like that. Let's let's talk about let's talk about what Dale Trombor does. Oh, right. How do you, how does your process start? Like what do you what do you do? So first I find the right poem. So we, we talked a little bit about that, right? I have to have permission and Again, that's like maybe the most important thing, because if you write a whole piece and then you don't have permission, you have to kind of throw out all of your work. (laughs) So (laughs) we never want that. So I have permission. The poem is right for whatever opportunity, if I have a specific opportunity in mind, like Mm -hmm. if there is a theme for a concert. And there's not always. Mm -hmm. But if there is, it's appropriate. Uh, And then so what I what I start with is I start reading the poem over and over again to see where the words what rhythm the words start falling into. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about meter before, right? Like three, four time signatures, three, three, four time go one, two, three, one, two, three, right? Or four, four time, one, two, three, four. So the thing with contemporary poetry is it doesn't always fall into those. It doesn't necessarily stay in one meter the whole time. So sometimes it changes meter. And that can be something, actually, it's kind of funny. Singers, uh, well, choral singers get used to all of these poems or all of these uh, all of these settings of poems that stay in 3-4 or 4-4. Four, four. So sometimes they're a little shocked when you ask them to change meter all the time. <laughs> but that's the thing with contemporary poetry is it, it kind of has to be flexible in that way in order to make sense as a musical setting. Hmm. Because you don't want to be putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable, right? Yeah. You always want to have, you want to have the the way we sing the words reflecting more or less how we would say the words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So I I actually want to give you a little bit of text and ask you, given everything we've talked about, <laughs> how you would set it if you're, if you're okay. open to All that. Right. It's sure, just a little sure. tiny bit. It's just a sentence. Okay. So. This is Barbara Crooker's poem, In the Middle. Okay. And here's the sentence. Okay. In the middle of a life that's as complicated as everyone else's, struggling for balance, juggling time. Oh, that like falls right into a meter yeah, it's, in my head. We've, right, you hear the word stresses. Yeah. So you're starting to think like a composer already, right? <laughs> in the middle of a life that's as complicated as everyone else's, struggling mm. for balance, juggling time. I mean, frankly, it feels like cheating. <laughs> that's, well, that's, that's a sign of a, a good poem to set to music, is when you look at it and, and the music just jumps off the page at you and you start hearing rhythms and, and melodies and harmonies. But that's, that's really cool that that's, that's how you go to Like, you're letting the text literally speak to you yeah, and yeah. write the music. That's really cool. So we talked a little bit about mood. Uh-huh. And obviously, this one's very different from The Road Home or yeah. from Threshold of Night. So in the middle of a life that's as complicated as everyone else's, struggling for balance, juggling time. So how would you maybe, what, what kind of mood would you go for? Um, if you were setting this piece, gosh, I mean, put you on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds really, hmm. Uh, it's, it's kind of an epic thought. So, you know, like it, it, 
it makes me think of very big sounding music. Very, hmm. um, I <laughs> my my vocabulary has no, officially failed me. Um, <laughs> that's fine. I just taught you how to maybe sound music. So there's also there's no there's no right answers. So yeah. keep that in mind when we look at the same text and two composers setting it. That yeah. usually it's it's very different sometimes there's similarities with the rhythm like we talked about but yeah um yeah it makes me think of like so, a like yeah. a like arcade fire maybe it has that that kind hmm. of mood that they sometimes have in in their work that's that's sort of um uh it's oh god what is the word i mean epic is is what it is but it's kind of like bombastic yeah. sounding it's kind of like it really drives home the the depth of meaning in in the words like that's like they yeah. warrant that kind of big sound yeah so yeah so if you want we can hear how i said it yeah. um there's there's one so when you, when you listen i did for the word struggling and juggling mm-hmm. uh it's kind of weird i hear struggling as being two syllables although some people say struggling uh-huh. but i do say juggling so <laughs> struggling has two <laughs> syllables and juggling has three yeah i had to make a decision there and i went with my gut instinct and yeah. maybe it was wrong but i'm i'm happy with it but those two words since they rhyme on the page uh they actually do sort of rhyme in the music there's the same music for both of them so okay. we can hear how i solved this yeah. sentence Did the did the text actually come back around to, and say time again, or was that your yeah. own? Okay. It or sorry, yeah, you know, you're right. It, the text doesn't do that, but oh. I did that, and there's a reason why. Okay, tell and me. And that's a whole different. That's a whole different thing too. Is when do we repeat the words? Yeah. When do we not repeat the words? And how do we decide? Um, yeah, and does this so, does this yeah. make the writers angry? When you when right. you add so things some, to their work, <laughs> yeah, no, some some writers do not like it. Okay. Um, I'm lucky that so far I've worked with writers <laughs> who are okay with it. Um, but the reason that it's there twice is because the word time actually comes back in this poem a lot. Uh. So one of my solutions to this piece being through composed mm-hmm. and free verse, right? So my having to kind of find my own way through it because there is no set form or meter or anything. Um, one thing I did is every time the word comes back, it's set more or less the same way. So mm-hmm. that was with that kind of descending figure that we heard. I see. Okay. So if you want, we could jump to the end of this piece and yeah. look at that. Yeah, um, let, let, so, yeah, so here's here's the text for that. Okay. We'll never get there. Time is always ahead of us, running down the beach, urging us on faster faster, but sometimes we take off our watches. Sometimes we lie in the hammock, caught between the mesh of rope and the net of stars, suspended, tangled up in love, running out of time. Huh. And that's, that's it. great. Yeah. So when I looked at this, there's so much potential for text painting in everything we talked about, right? Uh-huh. Like rhythm and melody and harmony. Um, like what kind of harmony would represent stars or love or lie in the hammock? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but 
the the cool thing about this part is the whole time the piano has been kind of speeding us up and slowing us down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the other thing, too. When we're writing, if we're writing for chorus and another instrument, we have to find a reason for that instrument to exist. So what is the purpose of that instrument? Why is it there? Really? Um, you have to you, like you have to justify that in this kind of music writing? I so you only to yourself. Um, and <laughs> I think this way and I don't think everyone thinks this way. I think okay. some people just think like, there's a piano because there's a piano but I'm always like what what is it doing there and what I see like how does it fit into the the text and how is it gonna help propel us along um so you have a very like purist approach to sort of yeah yeah okay yeah so for this the piano ends up being kind of like a timekeeper almost like a metronome do you know what a, a metronome is yeah yeah, the, right. So the it, ticking it, like, thing clicks. Yeah, it clicks back <laughs> and forth. So the piano is almost like a really unreliable metronome, mm-hmm. where it starts out with that rigid melody we heard in the beginning, and then it it starts flowing, and then it goes abruptly back in time, and it's uh, it's kind of supposed to reflect the way that we perceive life passing, where some moments mm-hmm. are going by really quickly, and some feel like we're we are caught up in the moment. Mm-hmm. So this one, in this one little tiny bit of text, we do. All of those things. So we're we're getting faster, faster, and then at sometimes we take off our watches. The poem itself, we start. We, there are all these commas all over the place. <laughs> sometimes we take off our watches. Sometimes we lie in the hammock, mm-hmm. caught between the mesh of rope and the net of stars, suspended, tangled up in love, running out of time. And the, I love how Barbara wrote this because. The word it's like the words get a little more complicated and we have to take time to say them mm-hmm. instead of running down the beach, which is really easy to say really fast, right? Yeah. Running down the beach. And as we talked about earlier with text painting, again, question to you, how would you maybe set running down the beach? If it was a melody, what's running down the beach? Running, running down, down the beach. Yeah. yeah. And what could you do with the notes, maybe? It would very, go, very leading questions dun, dun, here. Yeah, you could do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> sorry, I'm totally putting you on the spot here. <laughs> okay. um, but so, I think we could we could listen to this and hear how all of those things come together. The piano is pushing us on and then letting us slow down. Okay. Here, the music itself sort of runs out of time. Like, it just keeps going, and then it stops kind of abruptly. So this this sort of cleverness is, 
I'm finding very characteristic of this kind of music. I uh, we've had another guest on the show, Keith Weber, who talks. Um, he's talked to me about choral music too, and mm-hmm. and like once he explained to me what was going on in the music, I was like, that is pretty cool. Like, I mean, the the the, <laughs> the thought that goes into that, you know, the running down the beach, like uh, all of a yeah, sudden the, yeah. the music is 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 running, you know, yeah, but but like. But I had to have that explained to me, <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know. And I wonder, how, do you? Okay, how, this is a really obtuse question. But but how <laughs> much do you think that that cleverness is getting to listeners, and and how much do you think is just lost on them, and just they're just sort of mentally <laughs> glossing it over? And do you think that matters? So I think it's kind of like poetry where we can read it on the surface or we can take time and look at the craft behind it and see what's brilliant about how the words are strung together. Um, And part of with choral music, too, is hard because there's a lot of people singing at once and they're trying to get everything lined up in a lot of places. So it's exactly the same Mm -hmm. happening at the same time. And sometimes that doesn't happen. <laughs> With very good choirs, it, it always happens. But another thing composers do sometimes is they they don't necessarily let us hear every word as it's happening. Mm-hmm. So we don't get a very clear idea of the text. Now, here I'm reading the text to you before we hear, <laughs> right? Right, yeah. But it would actually, it, I don't know, it would be an interesting exercise to listen to some choral music and see if you could hear what they're saying yeah. without knowing what the text was. Um, and maybe we can, maybe we can try that. (laughs) But but I think that gets in the way a lot too, with some choral writing and some choral singing, but usually it's the fault of the composer where we can't get into what the words are and what the meaning is and what the, all of what what you called cleverness, right? All of the (laughs) little things that the composer is thinking about and trying to express in the music. If we don't hear what the words are, there's, there's no point of entry for the listener. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if they've if they've read the text before, and usually you do, you get a program, and it's got program notes, uh, and like my program notes for that piece say the piano is kind of like a timekeeper that's unreliable, right? <laughs> um, so you might be able to listen for that. And a lot of program notes have the text too, so you can read it first or read it as the choir is singing. But I do think it's the job of the composer to make make the words really clear. Yeah. Right. So that we we actually can hear what's going on, and that's one thing yeah. that pop and rock music do usually really well. Sometimes you get like pop singers where you have no idea what they're saying. Right, you get <laughs> Kurt like, Cobain with, who you can't yeah. understand at all. <laughs> yeah, there's all those yeah. like websites with misheard lyrics and things, right? <laughs> right. Like the wrong, yeah. But uh, yeah. choir, choir, yeah. You you could do the same thing with choir music. A lot of it. That's um, where it's just what are they saying? Um, but that's that's never. My goal is always to know exactly what they're saying. That is such. It's such a different way of listening to music. Like it's such a. Um, um, it's like really listening on purpose. Yeah, you know, like like as opposed to casually. Like it, it requires. It sounds like it requires um, a lot of participation on the part of the listener. It does. It does. Mm. And that's one, I guess that's one 
again, like barrier to entry for classical music. But because <laughs> you have to do stuff. <laughs> you have to actually be actively listening. Yeah, yeah it, which is it's always kind of funny when people are like, oh, I listen to classical music like when I'm studying or when mm-hmm. I'm, you know, when I'm doing work and when I'm but, and I'm always like, well, it's kind of I, I have trouble. I cannot like type words while I listen to classical music because my brain starts listening in that active way. Yeah. And I, I just can't do both things this at the is same time. I hear this from composers a lot who um, yeah. well like uh, John Luther Adams I was just reading a little thing with him in Runner's World and he was talking about how when he runs like a lot of people like to run to his music but he mm-hmm. he doesn't run to any music yeah. and I think for that same reason where it's like you know you're because you're just paying attention to the music you can't help it your your brain is just yeah. made that way where you yeah. can't and I, I yeah right I don't mean to sound snobby about it, too. Like, I, I almost wish I could listen to it as background noise and just uh-huh. have it be beautiful and wash over me. But I'm always like, oh, this part's coming back now. I'm like, oh, we heard this before. Yeah, that no, that part. doesn't and sound like, snobby at it's all. It's transformed and it's in a different key. And, oh, they're playing with a meter here. It's it's just an ongoing stream yeah. of of thoughts. Yeah. I so, realized too. I forgot to say. I forgot to say the name of the chorus singing that last piece is uh-huh. Choral Arts Initiative, and ah, they're the okay. ones that you mentioned in the intro are are coming out with an album of my music cool. in January, which I'm super excited about. That's very cool. So yeah. we'll we'll let's um, take us out on one last piece of music and uh, give an intro of what we're gonna hear. Yeah, so this last one is Spiritus Mundi, and the poet is Amy Fleury, who's yeah. another living author who writes or who writes and lives in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And maybe we'll listen to the music first with this one, and you can you can see if you can actually hear what they're saying. Okay, okay I'm going to pay really, really yeah. intense attention. <laughs> no idea what they're saying i'm assuming (laughs) i'm assuming that it is like in dutch or something and i'm just not (laughs) it's in english no it is it is hard even when there's really amazing diction and even whenever and this is this is a great choir too um yeah it's the golden bridge choir uh and susie digby's the conductor but yeah you're right it is it is really hard and that's where i think again it's the composer's job but it certainly helps to have things like the program with the yeah. the text in it first, or for you to even read the text as a, even if you're just listening at home, to, to find the text and read it and then listen to the piece, because you'll get, I think, so much more out of it. Yeah. 
that way. Man, I have yeah. learned so much in this episode. This is that's good. <laughs> well, like, I mean, like seriously, I've never really thought of like how how actively you really need to participate in classical music to to fully appreciate it, to re- to really get out of it everything that's yeah. there. That's I, like, but there's also like with with poems, right? You can also just uh-huh. read a poem and get a sense of it yeah. and a feeling from it. And you don't necessarily have to go all English major on it, sure. <laughs> you know, deconstruct. <laughs> so I think choral music especially is, is the same way where some people think it's, you know, it's beautiful and they, it, they let it wash over them. And yeah. it's, you can enjoy it that way. Right. Too, you can listen sure. to it on, on different levels. Yeah. Unless you're, you're you, right, in though. which case you're right. cursed and <laughs> you can't. On one level. Yeah. It is. Composers are cursed. It's, well, it's a good it's a good curse. Dale <laughs> Trumbord, this has been so much fun. Thanks thanks for uh, introducing me to this music and we'll look forward to your uh, album coming out in January 2017. Yeah, thank you so much again for having me on and I'm glad that you you feel like you've learned something about I choral totally music. Have. That's good. That's the goal. <laughs> All right, thanks Dale. All right, everybody, that does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org slash classroom, click on our social media links, and be amazed! Email me at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org. Subscribe to, rate us, and review us on iTunes, for it is written that you should. Thanks to audio producer Todd Twitty Holslander for twiddling knobs today. Thanks to editor Mark DeClaudio for his piercing Johnny Cash eyes. Thanks to Dale Trumbor for being on the show today, and to engineer Jeff Peters for his help over there at Marketplace Studios with the show today. Thanks to me for saying words, but most of all, thanks to you for listening. We will catch you next time. Hey listeners, it's Daisha again. So if you enjoy our classical music podcast, you should check out Houston Public Media's new podcast called Encore Houston. It's hosted by one of my favorite classical music nerds, Joshua Zinn, who's also been on our show, by the way. And it highlights great classical music played by groups right here in Houston. You are going to love it. And you can find it on iTunes. That's Encore Houston.